0: And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That praise be to God. Oh, this is the <laughs> word of the Lord.
1: Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Thanks, Eliza. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be with you again. We are continuing our series in uh, Advent, looking at Matthew's birth narrative. And the more I learn about the church calendar in Advent, and the more I work with John, quite frankly, and just develop a a greater appreciation for the liturgical calendar, uh, I think Advent is helpful in particular for our age of connectivity that we live in. And this is what I mean. So I was listening to a woman Bible teacher named Hannah Anderson this week, and she put it this way. She said, in our digital age, it feels like we're in outer space in this way. When you go to outer space, when you go to outer space, right, it's disorienting because any definable limit or boundary marker is evaporated. So are you up or down? No idea. What time is it? No idea, right? So you're, you're free-floating. And in much the same way, the digital space feels disorienting because when you enter into the internet, these same boundaries that are missing in outer space have been obliterated in the digital world, right? So you can interact with people and things no matter what time zone they're in, you lose all sense of geography. And the point of this is when we spend so much time online, I think a source of a lot of our angst and our feeling of overwhelm is really a, it's a longing for rootedness that we lose because of how much time we spend on screens. And so what's helpful about Advent and the liturgical calendar, more broadly speaking, is it gives us an opportunity to have clear boundary markers and to to put our feet on, on the ground, as it were. And so I just this has been really helpful for me, and I hope it is for you. And especially in Advent, as we saw last week, it gives us an opportunity to slow down, right, and not buy into the pace of capitalism, which has a, has a motive, right, for trying to keep you busy and buying things and doing things, but to slow down and look at the sorrow of the world and the meaning of Jesus' birth so that the lights and the parties on Christmas mean something far deeper than just general platitudes of love and kindness. Okay, and so as we continue in Advent, last week we looked more at the darkness of the world. We slowed down to look at that. And today what we're slowing down to do is look at who are the kinds of people that Jesus draws to himself. What, what are the types of people that Jesus draws to himself? We see this in the story of the wise men. Or put another way, who is Christmas for? That's how you can sum up this passage. Who is Christmas for? And while there are many qualities, we see three distilled in this passage. And we see that Jesus, or Christmas, is for the unqualified, the seeker, and the uncoerced. Okay, so the unqualified, the seeker... And the uncoerced. So let's jump in. First, the unqualified, verses 1 through 2, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here we have the wise men, the OGs of nativity scenes around the world, and If you ask your average passerby, what is a wise man? You'll probably get something to the effect of, oh, they're kings, or there were three of them, probably due to the carol, We Three Kings, right? Well, they probably weren't kings, and there were likely far more than three of them, given the stir they made in Jerusalem and the fact that they grabbed Herod's attention. We don't know much, but what we do know about the wise men or the magi, you may have a footnote in your Bible that that says Greek magi, is They were a kind of pagan astrologer that practiced sorcery and magic. Okay, so think about like the word magician. We get that from the word magi. And so this is strange that they're a centerpiece in Jesus' birth narrative because sorcery and magic are unequivocally condemned in the Hebrew Scriptures as not only evil, but as inroads into the dominion of demons and darkness itself but yet here they are. And so let's not be so familiar with the story and the nativity scene that we miss the fact that God's up to his old tricks again, okay, toppling our expectations of how his love and kingdom operate. Because look in this story, in, in verse three through six, you see the scribes and the teacher, they're basically the theologians and the church leaders of the day, and they know the story. So Herod says, you know, where is this king supposed to be born? And they go, oh, we know the scriptures. Mac- Micah 5.2 prophesied long ago Jesus is going to be born, or the king of Israel is going to be born in Bethlehem, right? They know the Bible. They're very churched, but yet they stay in Jerusalem in the palace, okay, kind of cozying up to King Herod, while it's the wise men, the pagan sorcerers who seek out Jesus and bow before him to, to worship him. And This story in miniature is what we see, we're going to see it all throughout Matthew. We see this pattern over and over again, where it's constantly those who believe they're put together, those who are confident in their own goodness, who stay away from Jesus. And it's the unexpected and the unqualified who go to Jesus, and the people who Jesus draws to himself. Uh, As as one commentator put it, David Mathis, he he writes... (laughs) God in his grace comes to them, the magi, through the very channel of their sin. And this is the hope of Christmas. Because unlike any secular pathway or any religious system, which they all have some kind of teacher at the top, which says these are the things you need to do to know you're somebody or to obtain our our salvation, right, secular religious systems, they all have a salvation that they teach you how to accomplish, right, or how to obtain, but Jesus comes and he says, yes, I am a teacher, okay, I do teach you how to live, but before I'm a teacher, I'm a savior, okay, so I don't just come to teach you how to become qualified for the kingdom of God, but I'm, I'm God come to you, okay, so in this way, Jesus is the only one, the only ruler, the only religious founder, the only one who's created something worth following, who isn't for the qualified, those who can live up to standards, but for the unqualified. And this is really good news, because so each week, uh, the leaders of this church, when we put together our Sunday service, one of the questions we ask ourselves is, how how can we help each person here leave feeling not a sense of condemnation, but hope? And here's a hope of Christmas, If if you wrestle with intense self-condemnation, if you're regularly frustrated that you are not the person you wish you could be, if you feel like your story is a who's who of sin and failure and foolishness, if you wonder if God has ever used you or if he ever could, God says, I love you today, not the mythical version of you that you're trying to, I love you today, right, and, and I am, I am with you always, right, I love you for who you are today, why, because, because of Christmas, and if you feel like you're unqualified, then you are the perfect material to be in my royal family, Is what god tells you through the incarnation because jesus is for the unqualified Okay, being unqualified helps you draw near to god not run away Okay, so it's incredibly good news. But in addition to good news. There is an edge to this reality that That jesus is for the unqualified So we love it when jesus tells us my grace is sufficient for you and we should love it But what about the fact that this same grace? Is sufficient for everybody else in the church? And I bring this up because we're in a moment where many people are leaving the church, particularly in the West. It's growing globally, but within America and the West, it's it's dwindling. And a top reason for people leaving the church is hypocrisy. Now, has there been egregious abuse by church leaders? Yes. And the church needs to own that and we condemn it full stop, and if, if you or somebody you know have been a victim of something like this, then just know that it is, it is absolutely understandable if you have a hard time walking through the doors of a church again, because okay, so we, we just have to acknowledge the deep pain that's been created here. And at the same time, there has to be another layer to this conversation, right? We're on the one hand doing full justice to those who've experienced abuse or mistreatment in the church. And on the other hand, there needs to be a word to Christians where because Jesus is for the unqualified, this means that he brings messy sinners into his family. When you bring a bunch of messy sinners together into a community, a bunch of messy, sinful things happen. And so within, within appropriate boundaries, we need to have, there needs to be an expectation and a tolerance for the fact that people will sin against you, people will be hypocrites, people will let you down. And if you don't have this expectation or tolerance, it will be impossible for you to be in the church. Remember, somebody told me, Steve, if you don't you're not going to have the resilience or the compassion required to be a pastor if you don't expect people to sin against you. Okay, so again, while putting a a full stop to any kind of, you know, true, real abuse, at the same time, we have to remember the kinds of people that Jesus draws to himself. Look, look the the magi are sorcerers for crying out loud. If you read the Gospels, the the way that Jesus' disciples throw barbed words at each other all the time, it's like, oh my goodness. And so if you find yourself feeling bitter towards somebody, okay, or maybe it's just, someone's just driving you bonkers. And, you know, it may not even be Sam, just, they just drive you crazy, because they're just so different than you. First, you have to ask yourself, doesn't Jesus stick with me even though I am unqualified? Okay, because there's an element, if you hold on to something against someone, there, there's a pride there, because what you're essentially saying is, I'm one of the qualified people in the community, But not everybody else. And so I I love Jesus because what he does is, on the one hand, he makes us tender and humble because he reminds us you're part of the mess too. But at the same time, he strengthens us and he gives us resilience to not freak out as if something strange were happening when people do let us down because we are a community of the unqualified who, who, by God's grace, we grow together. Okay, because Jesus is for the unqualified. So that's number one. And both incredibly good news. Also, it's hard uh, be- because we are a community of the unqualified. So that's number one. Christmas, Jesus is for the unqualified. Number two, who is Jesus for? He is for the seeker. Now see here in verse one, it says, wise men from the east came, ju- t- came to Jerusalem. So scholars, they're pretty sure that they were coming from ancient Persia or modern-day Iraq. So this is not a short distance, about 500 miles or eight hours in a car as the crow flies, I think. And, you know, they have camels, they have feet. So they are climbing over mountains, plodding through deserts, right? And they finally make it to Jerusalem, which then leads them to a small town of Bethlehem where they come before Jesus the child. He was probably one or two years old at the time. Okay, this wasn't infant baby Jesus in the manger, but he's probably one or two. And they, they realize, well, this is, they somehow intuit that the one who made the stars, who made the star that they've been following, has actually now come under the star and has come as a human being to them. And they bow before him in worship. And so they do this amid sorcerous and magical practices. They do this amid impure motives. And a lesson here is that God loves to meet people who seek him, even if it's impure motives, Okay, those of you who are theological curmudgeons, even if they come from a shifty theological history, <laughs> okay, God loves to meet people who seek him. And so here are a couple encouragements for you who are, who don't count yourself Christian, or those of you here, maybe you say like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you feel riddled with doubts currently, and are, are wrestling with a, a lot of doubts when when it comes to the Christian faith. And uh, the first thing here is, look at the trajectory of the wise men. So these are, they're smart individuals. They probably had a lot of influence in court. And they're used to discerning the celestial bodies. And they discern that someone important has been born. See, there is, where has is he been, been born king of the Jews? They've already, in, they've already gotten this somehow, right? So their their wisdom and their knowledge leads them to Jerusalem. And it's in in Jerusalem where they hear the scriptures, right? They're told from Micah 5-2 where the king of the Jews, Jesus, is going to be born, in Bethlehem, which is a small podunk town, right? It'd be as if you're looking for the most powerful person on the earth, and so you go to Beijing first, and then D.C., and then London, and suddenly you find out this person resides in Medora, North Dakota, which is a population of 120. It's like, what? Wouldn't have expected to look there. Okay, so the scriptures take them to Bethlehem, and they go to Bethlehem, and they see the living God become a child, and they bow down and worship. And so in summary, what is their trajectory? It goes wisdom, intelligence, right, discerning there is probably a God, discerning someone important has been born. This takes them to the scriptures, and then the scriptures take them to the child, the person of Jesus, or put another way, wisdom and spiritual pursuits, wisdom can take you far, but it can't take you all the way. And because it's in the scriptures where you know you actually have a God who's not of your own making, you notice a lot of people who just make up their own spirituality, you notice it's usually a God who happens to agree with everything they believe, so it's only in the scriptures you actually have a God who can contradict you, okay, a God who's revealed himself clearly in the person of Jesus, and if this sounds strange to you, it just, it it may be worth pointing out that historic Orthodox faith, right, so holding the humanity and divinity of Jesus together, the inspiration of the scriptures, just remember, especially in our cultural moment, it is far bigger than an American evangelical thing. Actually, what does even evangelical mean today? I don't know, but you go back 2,000 years, and the common thread of, like, Historic Orthodox faith is actually far more of a global diverse thing than an American thing. We have to remember this. And as you trace people's testimony, right, from the South Asian farmer to the European banker to the African artisan, the common thread of testimony is you have wisdom, you discern there's a God, and then they're brought to the scriptures, and it's in the scriptures where they meet the God who can personally be known in Jesus. It's okay, so whether you're, you're exploring the faith or you're walking with someone, it's just an important thread. We have to see this is how God almost always works. So that, that's number one. Okay, Wisdom can take you far, but it can't take you all the way. We need God to reveal himself to us in Scripture. The second thing we see here is notice that the wise men bow down before Jesus and give him their treasure. Right? These are expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's a a symbol of submission. It's a sign of worship. And what's going on here is think about how much the wise men don't yet know about this child when they decide to worship Jesus. And this is instructive for us in a lot of ways, but particularly as we think about the role of questions in a faith community. So on the one hand, many of you probably have experience in faith communities where questions are condemned. Right, you ask a question and it's smack. We don't ask questions here. Just have faith. Okay, and I hope if you're here and you've been coming for a little while, that hasn't been your experience here. As we see how God throughout the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament meets people with their questions. Like we need to be extremely humble and respectful toward questions and the people that ask them. Okay, so we have to be careful about condemning questions. But yet, on the other hand, often what happens is people will go from in understandable, right? Um, an understandable revulsion or just a reaction to communities where questions are condemned, you find yourself in a community where it's like the only enlightened path to take is to always be questioning, right? To never have certainty, to just to never really be sure. And so just a couple points here that I hope are challenging for you, and I say this as somebody who, for a long season in my adult life, I felt like I was in a season of agnosticism, where I wasn't even sure if I was ever going to come to a point of confidence in the Christian faith. First, just note that in a community where it's this, like, we, where questions are, are you know, if not condemned, they're celebrated and revered, there are deep convictions the community has. They're just not spoken, and it can be really dangerous to not speak about what those convictions are, even to be aware of what those deep convictions are about how reality works. So that's number one. But number two, I think in our age of information and cognition, where if we're going to make a decision on something, we will research everything. Like even if you're, if you're going to buy new floorboards for your house or redo the backsplash in your kitchen – You'll go into ten hours of existential crisis just making sure you pick the right color. Not that I've ever done this, <laughs> okay? In your before you okay, this is this is the contractor I'm going to use. This is the material and the color I'm going to use. But what happens is, was we apply that approach to God when He is a person, not a thing, and that's that's just not how life often works where you, you're going to have absolute certainty before you can move forward into a commitment. I remember even before I started church planting, I'm a very timid person. I finally just had some people who got in my face, and they were like, dude, Steve, if you can't, if you're waiting till you can predict that everything is going to go exactly according to plan before you and, and your team plant this church, it's never going to happen. I was just like, okay, that's, that's a reasonable point. Okay, it's the same thing with marriage. Okay, you can never have absolute certainty. And so the point here is what Jesus does not invite you to when it comes to the church, when it comes to the Bible and following him, it's not this fundamentalist approach where you can never ask questions. What he invites you into is a pathway of following him where you can have serious intellectual inquiry, but at the same time, deeply held faith. You're not going to know everything when you first start following him. The magi certainly didn't know everything. The men and women who followed Jesus in the first century didn't know everything. But you can follow him because God is for the seeker as well. Okay, so God, Christmas, for the unqualified, for the seeker. And then number three, he's for the, the uncoerced. So I came across this article this week where... Apparently Starbucks only did this recently, but they recently added that prompt to tip before you purchase your drink. So you're standing, like the barista's looking at your screen, and you buy the drink, and then the screen comes up, you know, how much do you want to tip, 30%, 25%, and so you can say no, but everyone behind you and the person who's serving you, your coffee is staring at you as you do it, and the article, it gives screenshots of all these different tweets of people just losing their minds that Starbucks decided to do this, and you're like, Why don't you just use your expensive drinks to pay your employees more, Starbucks? And I don't know. I guess middle upper class Americans, we have to have a grievance about something, okay? And so people are complaining about this, essentially this forced tip tip system. And underneath this story about people are being people, there is something to that where I think we all intuit that it is better to give of yourself because you want to, not because you have to right? And what do we see here? The wise men, when they see Jesus, they fall down and worship him, verse 11, and then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men traveled really far. I'm sure it was a dangerous road, and then they they bow before Jesus, and bowing in that day where most people carried swords was a intense sign of vulnerability, because essentially you're saying, like, I'm leaving myself open for you to cut my neck off, of their own volition, they bow before Jesus and give him their treasure. And this scene is provocative when you consider the context that this is taking place within more broadly because Jesus is born during the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And Peace of Rome is in quotation marks because how did Rome ensure peace? <laughs> okay, they did it through heavy taxation and stealing the natural resources of the people they subjugated. They kept puppet kings, you know, because it was such a vast empire, there were puppet kings in all these regions like Herod here who are authorized to essentially do whatever it takes to, peep, to keep people in submission. Next week when Dr. Red from RTS comes to preach for us, we're going to see how Herod has all the male children under the age two slaughtered because this is how rulers ensure obedience. It, it, it has to happen through coercion. But what we have here, when the wise men are bowing before Jesus, it's a direct contradiction and challenge to the way Rome and Herod and every other ruler like them operate, which is that in Jesus, you actually have a powerful ruler who, you realize he doesn't get your obedience through coercion. This is actually something that was striking me in a new way as I was studying this this week. Like, Jesus, even though he's the fierce lion who upholds the world, he doesn't coerce your obedience. And I just finished a personal reading through John, and in John, basically every, in every chapter, you have Jesus doing something unexpected, and a few people decide to follow him, and many people walk away. And then you get to the end of his life before the crucifixion, and you have the, the Roman leader, Pilate, right, jeering and sneering up in his face, and he says, don't you know that I have authority whether to take your life or to let you go free? And then he hands him over to guards who whip him and spit on him as they laugh at him. And not once, from the unimpressed present to the jeering soldier, does Jesus break out his godness And, you know, like use the force to bend their back into obedience and submission. Why? Because Jesus is not like other rulers. He wins your allegiance and your obedience through self-sacrificial love. Even to the point of death on a cross. And he changes your heart so that you actually want to follow him. Okay, not because you have to, but because, because you get to. And I think as the magi are here bowing before Jesus, it's as if they're intuiting that if there is a God who is willing to make himself so vulnerable that he became a baby, and as we know a God who is willing to make himself even more vulnerable, the only thing I can think of that's more vulnerable than a baby is a man nailed to a block of wood. If God was willing to become this vulnerable, then he is a God worthy of my worship. And so for you, I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you're a Christian who in some area of your life, you're keeping Jesus at arm's length. Maybe you haven't yet taken that first step toward following Jesus. Like, it's important to note that you are following and bowing down to a master. And you will gladly give your treasure to whatever this master is, right? It it might be the master of a certain vision of career success. You will give all kinds of treasure to it to make sure it happens. It may be a relationship. You will give up all kinds of treasure to try to keep that thing or to obtain it. It may be the master of your desires, right? You will give up even the treasure of other people's wisdom, to follow your desires wherever they lead you. But here you have Jesus who he doesn't coerce you, right, or submit you into obeying him. But he wins your heart through sacrificial love, changes your heart so that you want to follow him. I don't know, I don't know any other king like that. I don't know any other ruler or master like that. And so let's look at this scene one more time because as these wise men bow before little Jesus, what we have here is a window into the new earth when Jesus fulfills his project of peace on earth, not through the sword like Rome, not through coercive laws like the government or political parties today, but through changed hearts where everybody worships him and loves neighbor freely and gladly. And so the call of Advent and Christmas is to follow Jesus, not because you have to, but because you get to. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are a king and rule over us and everything, and yet you are a king who is for the unqualified, uh, for the seeker and for the uncoerced. Uh, I thank you so much for how good you are and powerful you are at the same time. And I pray that uh, for all of us this evening, these truths about you will ignite us in a new way and that we'll follow you, uh, whether we feel like we've been following you for years or whether we've yet to take that first step. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.